Section 16 of Natural Theology by William Paley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 14. Prospective Contrivances. I can hardly imagine to myself a more distinguishing mark, and consequently a more certain proof of design, than preparation, i.e., the providing of things beforehand, which are not to be used until a considerable time afterwards, for this implies a contemplation of the future, which belongs only to intelligence. Of these prospective contrivances, the bodies of animals furnish various examples. 1. The human teeth afford an instance not only of prospective contrivance, but of the completion of the contrivance being designedly suspended. They are formed within the gums, and there they stop. The fact being that their further advance to maturity would not only be useless to the newborn animal, but extremely in its way, as it is evident that the act of sucking, by which it is for some time to be nourished, will be performed with more ease both to the nurse and to the infant, whilst the inside of the mouth and edges of the gums are smooth and soft than if set with hard pointed bones. By the time they are wanted, the teeth are ready. They have been lodged within the gums for some months past, but detained, as it were, in their sockets, so long as their further protrusion would interfere with the office to which the mouth is destined. Nature, namely, that intelligence which was employed in creation, looked beyond the first year of the infant's life. Yet, whilst she was providing for functions which were after that term to become necessary, was careful not to incommode those which preceded them. What renders it more probable that this is the effect of design is that the teeth are imperfect whilst all other parts of the mouth are perfect. The lips are perfect, the tongue is perfect. The cheeks, the jaws, the palate, the pharynx, the larynx are all perfect. The teeth alone are not so. This is the fact with respect to the human mouth. The fact also is that the parts above enumerated are called into use from the beginning, whereas the teeth would be only so many obstacles and annoyances if they were there. When a contrary order is necessary, a contrary order prevails. In the worm of the beetle, as hatched from the egg, the teeth are the first things which arrive at perfection. The insect begins to gnaw as soon as it escapes from the shell, though its other parts be only gradually advancing to their maturity. What has been observed of the teeth is true of the horns of animals, and for the same reason. The horn of a calf or a lamb does not bud, or at least does not sprout to any considerable length, until the animal be capable of browsing upon its pasture, because such a substance upon the forehead of the young animal would very much incommode the teat of the dam in the office of giving suck. But in the case of the teeth, of the human teeth at least, the prospective contrivance looks still further. A succession of crops is provided, and provided from the beginning, a second tier being originally formed beneath the first, which do not come into use till several years afterwards. And this double or suppletory provision meets a difficulty in the mechanism of the mouth, which would have appeared almost insurmountable. The expansion of the jaw, the consequence of the proportionable growth of the animal and of its skull, necessarily separates the teeth of the first set, however compactly disposed, to a distance from one another, which would be very inconvenient. In due time, therefore, i.e., when the jaw has attained a great part of its dimensions, a new set of teeth springs up, loosening and pushing out the old ones before them, more exactly fitted to the space which they are to occupy, and rising also in such close ranks as to allow for any extension of line which the subsequent enlargement of the head may occasion. 2. 
it is not very easy to conceive a more evidently prospective contrivance than that which in all viviparous animals is found in the milk of the female parent at the moment the young animal enters the world there is its maintenance ready for it the particulars to be remarked in this economy are neither few nor slight we have first the nutritious quality of the fluid unlike in this respect every other excretion of the body and in which nature hitherto remains unimitated neither cookery nor chemistry having been able to make milk out of grass we have secondly the organ for its reception and retention we have thirdly the excretory duct annexed to that organ and we have lastly the determination of the milk to the breast at the particular juncture when it is about to be wanted we have all these properties in the subject before us and they are all indications of design the last circumstance is the strongest of any if i had been to guess beforehand i should have conjectured that at the time when there was an extraordinary demand for nourishment in one part of the system there would be the least likelihood of a redundancy to supply another part the advanced pregnancy of the female has no intelligible tendency to fill the breast with milk the lacteal system is a constant wonder and it adds to other causes of our admiration that the number of the teats or paps in each species is found to bear a proportion to the number of the young in the sow the bitch the rabbit the cat the rat which have numerous litters the paps are numerous and are disposed along the whole length of the belly in the cow and mare they are few the most simple account of this is to refer it to a designing creator but in the argument before us we are entitled to consider not only animal bodies when framed but the circumstances under which they are framed and in this view of the subject the constitution of many of their parts is most strictly prospective three the eye is of no use at the time when it is formed it is an optical instrument made in a dungeon constructed for the refraction of light to a focus and perfect for its purpose before a ray of light has had access to it geometrically adapted to the properties and actions of an element with which it has no communication it is about indeed to enter into that communication and this is precisely the thing which evidences intention it is providing for the future in the closest sense which can be given to these terms for it is providing for a future change not for the then subsisting condition of the animal not for any gradual progress or advance in that same condition but for a new state the consequence of a great and sudden alteration which the animal is to undergo at its birth is it to be believed that the eye was formed or which is the same thing that the series of causes was fixed by which the eye is formed without a view to this change without a prospect of that condition in which its fabric of no use at present is about to be of the greatest without a consideration of the qualities of that element hitherto entirely excluded but with which it was hereafter to hold so intimate a relation a young man makes a pair of spectacles for himself against he grows old for which spectacles he has no want or use whatever at the time he makes them could this be done without knowing and considering the defect of vision to which advanced age is subject would not the precise suitableness of the instrument to its purpose of the remedy to the defect of the convex lens to the flattened eye establish the certainty of the conclusion that the case afterwards to arise had been considered beforehand speculated upon provided for all which are exclusively the acts of a reasoning mind the eye formed in one state for use only in another state and in a different state affords a proof no less clear of destination to a future purpose and a proof proportionably stronger as the machinery is more complicated and the adaptation more exact
4. What has been said of the eye holds equally true of the lungs. Composed of air vessels where there is no air, elaborately constructed for the alternate admission and expulsion of an elastic fluid where no such fluid exists, this great organ, with the whole apparatus belonging to it, lies collapsed in the fetal thorax, yet in order and in readiness for action the first moment that the occasion requires its service. This is having a machine locked up in store for future use, which incontestably proves that the case was expected to occur in which this use might be experienced. But expectation is the proper act of intelligence. Considering the state in which an animal exists before its birth, I should look for nothing less in its body than a system of lungs. It is like finding a pair of bellows in the bottom of the sea, of no sort of use in the situation in which they are found, formed for an action which was impossible to be exerted, holding no relation or fitness to the element which surrounds them, but both to another element in another place. As part and parcel of the same plan ought to be mentioned in speaking of the lungs, the provisionary contrivances of the foramen ovale and ductus arteriosus. In the fetus, pipes are laid for the passage of the blood through the lungs, but until the lungs be inflated by the inspiration of air, that passage is impervious or in a great degree obstructed. What then is to be done? What would an artist, what would a master do upon the occasion? He would endeavor, most probably, to provide a temporary passage which might carry on the communication required until the other was open. Now this is the thing which is actually done in the heart. Instead of the circuitous route through the lungs, which the blood afterwards takes, before it get from one oracle of the heart to the other, a portion of the blood passes immediately from the right oracle to the left, through a hole placed in the partition which separates these cavities. This hole anatomists call the foramen ovale. There is likewise another cross-cut, answering the same purpose, by what is called the ductus arteriosus, lying between the pulmonary artery and the aorta. But both expedients are so strictly temporary that, after birth, the one passage is closed, and the tube which forms the other shriveled up into a ligament. If this be not contrivance, what is? But, forasmuch as the action of the air upon the blood in the lungs appears to be necessary to the perfect concoction of that fluid, i.e. to the life and health of the animal, otherwise the shortest route might still be the best, how comes it to pass that the fetus lives and grows and thrives without it? The answer is that the blood of the fetus is the mother's, that it has undergone that action in her habit, that one pair of lungs serves for both. When the animals are separated, a new necessity arises, and to meet this necessity as soon as it occurs, an organization is prepared. It is ready for its purpose, it only waits for the atmosphere. It begins to play the moment the air is admitted to it. Chapter 15. Relations. When several different parts contribute to one effect, or which is the same thing, when an effect is produced by the joint action of different instruments, the fitness of such parts or instruments to one another for the purpose of producing by their united action the effect is what I call relation and wherever this is observed in the works of nature or of man, it appears to me to carry along with it decisive evidence of understanding, intention, art. In examining, for instance, the several parts of a watch, the spring, the barrel, the chain, the fusee, the balance, the wheels, of various sizes, forms, and positions, what is it which would take an observer's attention as most plainly evincing a construction directed by thought, deliberation, and contrivance? 
it is the suitableness of these parts to one another first in the succession and order in which they act and secondly with a view to the effect finally produced thus referring the spring to the wheels our observer sees in it that which originates and upholds their motion in the chain that which transmits the motion to the fusee in the fusee that which communicates it to the wheels in the conical figure of the fusee if we refer to the spring he sees that which corrects the inequality of its force referring the wheels to one another he notices first their teeth which would have been without use or meaning if there had been only one wheel or if the wheels had had no connection between themselves or common bearing upon some joint effect secondly correspondency of their position so that the teeth of one wheel catch into the teeth of another thirdly the proportion observed in the number of teeth of each wheel which determines the rate of going referring the balance to the rest of the works he saw when he came to understand its action that which rendered their motions equable lastly in looking upon the index and face of the watch he saw the use and conclusion of the mechanism viz marking the succession of minutes and hours but all depending upon the motions within all upon the system of intermediate actions between the spring and the pointer what thus struck his attention in the several parts of the watch he might probably designate by one general name of relation and observing with respect to all cases whatever in which the origin and formation of a thing could be ascertained by evidence that these relations were found in things produced by art and design and in no other things he would rightly deem of them as characteristic of such productions to apply the reasoning here described to the works of nature the animal economy is full is made up of these relations one there are first what in one form or another belong to all animals the parts and powers which successively act upon their food compare this action with the process of a manufactory in men and quadrupeds the aliment is first broken and bruised by mechanical instruments of mastication viz sharp spikes or hard knobs pressing against or rubbing upon one another thus ground and comminuted it is carried by a pipe into the stomach where it waits to undergo a great chemical action which we call digestion when digested it is delivered through an orifice which opens and shuts as there is occasion into the first intestine there after being mixed with certain proper ingredients poured through a hole in the side of the vessel it is further dissolved in this state the milk chyle or part which is wanted and which is suited for animal nourishment is strained off by the mouths of very small tubes opening into the cavity of the intestines thus freed from its grosser parts the percolated fluid is carried by a long winding but traceable course into the main stream of the old circulation which conveys it in its progress to every part of the body now i say again compare this with the process of a manufactory with the making of cider for example with the bruising of the apples in the mill the squeezing of them when so bruised in the press the fermentation in the vat the bestowing of the liquor thus fermented in the hogsheads the drawing off into the bottles the pouring out for use into the glass let any one show me any difference between these two cases as to the point of contrivance that which is at present under our consideration the relation of the parts successively employed is not more clear in the last case than in the first the aptness of the jaws and teeth to prepare the food for the stomach is at least as manifest as that of the cider mill to crush the apples for the press the concoction of the food in the stomach is as necessary for its future use 
as the fermentation of the stum in the vat is to the perfection of the liquor. The disposal of the aliment afterwards, the action and change which it undergoes, the route which it is made to take, in order that, and until that, it arrive at its destination, is more complex indeed and intricate, but in the midst of complication and intricacy, as evident and certain, as is the apparatus of cocks, pipes, tunnels, for transferring the cider from one vessel to another, of barrels and bottles for preserving it till fit for use, or of cups and glasses for bringing it, when wanted, to the lip of the consumer. The character of the machinery is in both cases this, that one part answers to another part, and every part to the final result. This parallel between the alimentary operation and some of the processes of art might be carried further into detail. Spallanzani has remarked a circumstantial resemblance between the stomachs of gallinaceous fowls and the structure of corn mills. Whilst the two sides of the gizzard perform the office of the millstones, the craw or crop supplies the place of the hopper. When our fowls are abundantly supplied with meat, they soon fill their craw, but it does not immediately pass thence into the gizzard. It always enters in very small quantities in proportion to the progress of trituration. In like manner as in a mill, a receiver is fixed above the two large stones which serve for grinding the corn, which receiver, although the corn be put into it by bushels, allows the grain to dribble only in small quantities into the central hole in the upper millstone. But we have not done with the alimentary history. There subsists a general relation between the external organs of an animal by which it procures its food and the internal powers by which it digests it. Birds of prey, by their talons and beaks, are qualified to seize and devour many species, both of other birds and of quadrupeds. The constitution of the stomach agrees exactly with the form of the members. The gastric juice of a bird of prey, of an owl, a falcon, or a kite, acts upon the animal fiber alone. It will not act upon seeds or grasses at all. On the other hand, the conformation of the mouth of the sheep or the ox is suited for browsing upon herbage. Nothing about these animals is fitted for the pursuit of living prey. Accordingly, it has been found by experiments, tried not many years ago with perforated balls, that the gastric juice of ruminating animals, such as the sheep and the ox, speedily dissolves vegetables, but makes no impression upon animal bodies. This accordancy is still more particular. The gastric juice even of graminivorous birds will not act upon the grain whilst whole and entire. In performing the experiment of digestion with the gastric juice in vessels, the grain must be crushed and bruised before it be submitted to the menstruum, that is to say, must undergo by art, without the body, the preparatory action which the gizzard exerts upon it within the body, or no digestion will take place. So strict in this case is the relation between the offices assigned to the digestive organ, between the mechanical operation and the chemical process. 2. The relation of the kidneys to the bladder, and of the ureters to both, i.e., of the secreting organ to the vessel receiving the secreted liquor, and the pipe laid from one to the other for the purpose of conveying it from one to the other, is as manifest as it is amongst the different vessels employed in a distillery or in the communications between them. The animal structure in this case being simple, and the parts easily separated, it forms an instance of correlation which may be presented by dissection to every eye, or which indeed, without dissection, is capable of being apprehended by every understanding. This correlation of instruments to one another fixes intention somewhere. 
especially when every other solution is negatived by the conformation. If the bladder had been merely an expansion of the ureter, produced by retention of the fluid, there ought to have been a bladder for each ureter. One receptacle, fed by two pipes, issuing from different sides of the body, yet from both conveying the same fluid, is not to be accounted for by any such supposition as this. 3. Relation of parts to one another accompanies us throughout the whole animal economy. Can any relation be more simple, yet more convincing than this, that the eyes are so placed as to look in the direction in which the legs move and the hands work? It might have happened very differently if it had been left to chance. There were at least three-quarters of the compass out of four to have erred in. Any considerable alteration in the position of the eye, or the figure of the joints, would have disturbed the line and destroyed the alliance between the sense and the limbs. 4. But relation perhaps is never so striking as when it subsists not between different parts of the same thing, but between different things. The relation between a lock and a key is more obvious than it is between different parts of the lock. A bow was designed for an arrow, and an arrow for a bow, and the design is more evident for their being separate implements. Nor do the works of the deity want this clearest species of relation. The sexes are manifestly made for each other. They form the grand relation of animated nature, universal, organic, mechanical, subsisting like the clearest relations of art in different individuals, unequivocal, inexplicable without design. So much so that, were every other proof of contrivance in nature dubious or obscure, this alone would be sufficient. The example is complete. Nothing is wanting to the argument. I see no way whatever of getting over it. 5. The teats of animals, which give suck, bear a relation to the mouth of the suckling progeny, particularly to the lips and tongue. Here also, as before, is a correspondency of parts, which parts subsist in different individuals. These are general relations, or the relations of parts which are found either in all animals or in large classes and descriptions of animals. Particular relations, or the relations which subsist between the particular configuration of one or more parts of certain species of animals, and the particular configuration of one or more other parts of the same animal, which is the sort of relation that is perhaps most striking, are such as the following. 1. In the swan, the web foot, the spoon bill, the long neck, the thick down, the graminivorous stomach, bear all a relation to one another, inasmuch as they all concur in one design, that of supplying the occasions of an aquatic fowl floating upon the surface of shallow pools of water, and seeking its food at the bottom. Begin with any one of these particularities of structure, and observe how the rest follow it. The web foot qualifies the bird for swimming. The spoonbill enables it to graze. But how is an animal floating upon the surface of pools of water to graze at the bottom except by the mediation of a long neck? A long neck accordingly is given to it. Again, a warm-blooded animal, which was to pass its life upon water, required a defense against the coldness of that element. Such a defense is furnished to the swan in the muff in which its body is wrapped. But all this outward apparatus would have been in vain if the intestinal system had not been suited to the digestion of vegetable substances. I say suited to the digestion of vegetable substances, for it is well known that there are two intestinal systems found in birds, one with a membranous stomach and a gastric juice capable of dissolving animal substances alone, the other with a crop and gizzard calculated for the moistening, bruising, and afterwards digesting of vegetable aliment. 
or set off with any other distinctive part in the body of the swan, for instance, with the long neck. The long neck, without the web foot, would have been an encumbrance to the bird. Yet there is no necessary connection between a long neck and a web foot. In fact, they do not usually go together. How happens it, therefore, that they meet only when a particular design demands the aid of both? 2. This mutual relation, arising from a subserviency to a common purpose, is very observable also in the parts of a mole. The strong short legs of that animal, the palmated feet armed with sharp nails, the pig-like nose, the teeth, the velvet coat, the small external ear, the sagacious smell, the sunk protected eye, all conduce to the utilities or to the safety of its underground life. It is a special purpose, specially consulted throughout. The form of the feet fixes the character of the animal. They are so many shovels. They determine its action to that of rooting in the ground. And everything about its body agrees with this destination. The cylindrical figure of the mole, as well as the compactness of its form, arising from the terseness of its limbs, proportionally lessens its labor. Because, according to its bulk, it thereby requires the least possible quantity of earth to be removed for its progress. It has nearly the same structure of the face and jaws as a swine, and the same office for them. The nose is sharp, slender, tendinous, strong, with a pair of nerves going down to the end of it. The plush covering, which, by the smoothness, closeness, and polish of the short piles that compose it, rejects the adhesion of almost every species of earth, defends the animal from cold and wet, and from the impediment which it would experience by the mold sticking to its body. From soils of all kinds the little pioneer comes forth bright and clean. Inhabiting dirt, it is, of all animals, the neatest. But what I have always most admired in the mole is its eyes. This animal, occasionally visiting the surface, and wanting, for its safety and direction, to be informed when it does so, or when it approaches it, a perception of light was necessary. I do not know that the clearness of sight depends at all upon the size of the organ. What is gained by the largeness or prominence of the globe of the eye is width in the field of vision. Such a capacity would be of no use to an animal which was to seek its food in the dark. The mole did not want to look about it, nor would a large advanced eye have been easily defended from the annoyance to which the life of the animal must constantly expose it. How indeed was the mole, working its way underground, to guard its eyes at all. In order to meet this difficulty, the eyes are made scarcely larger than the head of a corking pin, and these minute globules are sunk so deeply in the skull, and lie so sheltered within the velvet of its covering, as that any contraction of what may be called the eyebrows not only closes up the apertures which lead to the eyes, but presents a cushion, as it were, to any sharp or protruding substance which might push against them. This aperture, even in its ordinary state, is like a pinhole in a piece of velvet, scarcely pervious to loose particles of earth. Observe then in this structure that which we call relation. There is no natural connection between a small sunk eye and a shovel palmated foot. Palmated feet might have been joined with goggle eyes, or small eyes might have been joined with feet of any other form. What was it, therefore, which brought them together in the mole? That which brought together the barrel, the chain, and the fusee in a watch, design, and design, in both cases, inferred from the relation which the parts bear to one another in the prosecution of a common purpose. As hath already been observed, there are different ways of stating the relation, according as we set out from a different part. In the instance before us, we may either consider the shape of the feet, as qualifying the animal for that mode of life and inhabitation to which the structure of its eyes confines it, 
or we may consider the structure of the eye as the only one which would have suited with the action to which the feet are adapted. The relation is manifest whichever of the parts related we place first in the order of our consideration. In a word, the feet of the mole are made for digging, the neck, nose, eyes, ears, and skin are peculiarly adapted to an underground life. And this is what I call relation. End of section 16